Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we talked about Jorvik, the most important city in Scandinavian-controlled England. The city was an important hub in the Viking trade network that connected the North Atlantic with the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And at its peak, Jorvik was the second largest city in England with an impressive 10,000 inhabitants, or thereabout. Despite its riches and place as a prominent trading post, or perhaps because of it, Jorvik had a turbulent political history under Scandinavian rule. The Viking kings replaced each other with a frequency that can't have lent itself to stable local government. In the end, the last Viking king of Jorvik, Eric Bloodaxe, was ousted and killed. His Scandinavian realm was absorbed into the Kingdom of England, and Jorvik eventually became York. Even though both Norwegian and Danish Vikings made a few attempts to reclaim the city, it would never again have a Scandinavian ruler, not even for a short, unstable while. The Anglo-Saxons had been triumphant, and they had driven out the Scandinavians from England once and for all. Or at least, so they thought. This time, we'll eventually see that illusion come crashing down when the descendants of Vikings will invade and put an end to the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. But the invasion won't be coming from Scandinavia. Instead, the threat will appear from a completely different direction, from the south. The star of today's episode is the Viking sea king, Rollo, known to us from several more or less dodgy sources, one of them being the History Channel's hits TV series, Vikings. But unlike what contemporary pop culture would have you believe, Rollo was not Ragnar Lothbrok's brother. They weren't even contemporary, and when Rollo was sailing up the river Seine, Ragnar Lothbrok's raiding days had been over for a long time. Today, we'll talk about how a Viking force under Rollo's leadership turned yet another raiding campaign against Francia into a settlement plan. It's his and his Viking soldiers' descendants who later will wreak havoc in Anglo-Saxon England. Episode 9, Fatso in France. Just as they did in the British Isles, the Vikings who raided in Francia pushed further and further year by year. Step by step, they sailed further down the coast and further up the rivers, reaching ever larger expanses of territory and threatening even larger groups of the local population. Eventually, they sailed up the Loire River to Tours and Blois and up the Garonne all the way to Toulouse. From the mid-9th century onwards, Viking raiding parties started to winter in the lower Seine Valley and in the 860s they attacked Paris twice, only leaving it after the locals had coughed up a sufficiently large sum of money to bribe the invaders to go away. This kind of bribe, or protection money paid by more or less defenseless locals to convince Viking raiders to leave them alone, is called Danegeld. It was a standard move in the royal playbooks on both sides of the English Channel during the 9th to 11th centuries to buy off Viking attackers in this way. Despite the name though, Danegeld was taken by Vikings from all parts of Scandinavia, not only from Denmark. The name is most likely derived from the fact that the set-upon Franks and Anglo-Saxons couldn't be bothered to differentiate between Vikings of various nationalities, and the Vikings couldn't care less what it was called as long as they got the goods. 
We know that the practice must have been widespread, not least by the fact that more Anglo-Saxon pennies from this period have been found by archaeologists in Denmark alone than in England. In Sweden, vast quantities of silver coins have been found in hordes, and it's estimated that the Vikings brought home at least 100 metric tons of silver that they had acquired this way. If you take into account that they presumably spent a penny or two on the continent before sailing home, you start to realize the epic proportion of this redistribution of wealth to Scandinavians through extortion and pillaging during the Viking Age. Unsurprisingly, the practice made quite an impression on the victims. Shakespeare makes a reference to Danegilt in Hamlet, written at least 500 years after the last piece of silver was handed over to threatening Danes. And in 1911, Rudyard Kipling published a whole poem called Danegelt, where he cautions against the practice. The end of the poem proclaims, We never pay anyone Danegelt, no matter how trifling the cost, for the end of that game is oppression and shame, and the nation that plays it is lost. Of course, that was easy for Kipling to say, harassed English and Frankish kings and local dignitaries who had to deal with the Vikings didn't have the benefit of the Royal Navy at the height of the British Empire to hide behind, so in many instances they simply saw no other choice than to pay up. One of the reasons, indeed the main reason, why people were willing to pay Danegelt was that the Vikings weren't bluffing. Those who declined to pay and couldn't protect themselves were more, like, more than likely to be robbed, have their houses burned to the ground and either be killed or be sold off to slavery. As the pressure from the Vikings increased, the Frankish authorities didn't just sit on their hands though. Eventually, they started to organize some kind of resistance against the onslaught. On June 25th in the year 864, King Charles the Bold promulgated an edict known as Edictum Pistense in a tiny village on the Seine River. The purpose was to set up a defense against these Viking attacks, and it has gone down as one of the high points in Charles's reign. The plan had two main pillars. First, fortified bridges were constructed across the river to hinder the Vikings from sailing up the Seine to reach communities further inland. For instance, the fortified bridge constructed in Peter, the tiny village where the edict was promulgated, served to defend Paris and other cities upstream. Secondly, a large cavalry force was set up, and they would be able to respond to Viking attacks before it was too late. The force would be able to reach the site of the attack before the Vikings had a chance to leave, and hopefully kill the intruders, or at least fight them off. The previous structure of the Frankish military, and the way its units were called up and activated, was too time-consuming to have been an effective defense against the Viking raids. By the time the old units showed up, the Vikings would be long gone. The edict demanded that any man who owned horses, or who could afford to own a horse, should serve in this new cavalry force. This way, the central government didn't have to actually pay for the new cavalry, and Charles wasn't the first, nor the last ruler, to finance the beefing up of his armed forces this way. And, like in so many other similar cases, these new horse-born soldiers developed into an elite fighting unit of rich, or at least relatively well-off people, who eventually would also assert their elite status in the political arena as well. In an attempt to keep the growing power of the nobility in check, there was actually a clause about forbidding the construction of private castles included in the Edictum Pistense. But it didn't help, and various Frankish aristocrats continued to construct fortresses on their own land, 
some of them even used the Viking incursions to justify these building projects. One last Viking-related detail in the edict was a ban on the sale of weapons or horses to the Vikings. The latter was even made a capital offense. The fact that this ban was included in the edict in the first place is an indication that such sales were actually taking place, which gives you an interesting insight into late 9th century Frankish war profiteering, where some merchants apparently were fine with providing the Vikings with what they needed to attack their neighbors. Further up the river from Pitre, the edict led to two new bridges being built to protect Paris itself. Back in those days, all of Paris fit on the Ile de la Cité, which is an island in the Seine River. When you go to Paris today, this is the island in the city centre where the Notre Dame Cathedral is located. These bridges across the Seine would be put to the test soon enough, because in the year 885, the Vikings launched a concerted attack on Paris with a fleet that some sources claim included no fewer than 700 ships carrying maybe as many as 30 to 40,000 Vikings. More conservative estimates put the number of ships somewhere around 300, but that's still a large enough number to take the threat that they pose quite seriously. By this time, Charles the Fat was king. The leader of this enormous Viking fleet demanded Danegeld from Charles, who refused. This, of course, then promoted the Vikings to sail up the Seine, burning and plundering as they went along. The Franks did what they could to stop the advancing fleet, but to no avail. By late November 885, the Viking longships could be seen from the walls of Paris. The bridges were built so that the Viking ships couldn't pass under them. When the invaders approached, the defenders started to fortify the bridges, adding two guard towers to each bridge. According to the same sources that claimed that Vikings could be counted in the tens of thousands, there were no more than 200 men to defend the bridges from the inevitable attack. Even though these were backed up by a fighting bishop and a smattering of local nobles, were still painted a picture of overwhelming odds in favour of the Scandinavians. So overwhelming, in fact, that we should probably be wary of all kinds of biases in the sources. Anyway, when the Vikings arrived outside the gates of Paris on November 24th, or possibly 25th, they once again demanded Danegeld. When the defenders refused to pay the extortion money to be left unmolested, the Scandinavians prepared to attack the city. On November 26th, the attack began. The Vikings attacked the northeast tower of one of the bridges, but the defenders managed to push them back by pouring hot wax and pitch on them. All additional attacks that day were repulsed as well, as were the ones the following day. Even though the Vikings realized that it wouldn't be a quick smash-and-grab affair this time, they still didn't give up. They set up camp on the right riverbank, that is northeast of Paris, and thought about what to do next. In an attempt to change things up, they decided to try to remove one of the bridges blocking the river. They attacked the bridge from a ship on the river, and at the same time they attacked it from the riverbank, trying to set the bridge on fire. This didn't work either. For several weeks, they kept up the pressure on the city with more or less constant attacks, but with very little to show for their efforts. In January 886, they decided to try to bypass the bridge by filling the river shallows with all sorts of debris, carcasses of dead animals and the bodies of dead Frankish prisoners. They continued in these efforts for two days before they felt ready for a renewed attack. This time, they set three ships on fire and sent them downstream towards the bridge in the hope that it would catch fire. 
unfortunately for the Vikings, the ships sank before they could cause any serious harm to the bridge. But on February 6th, their luck turned and the Vikings caught a break. Heavy rains caused the river to overflow and the pressure from the flood, in combination with the debris and the dead bodies, finally became too much for the bridge. It collapsed and was washed away. Left on the riverbank stood an isolated tower with 12 defenders trapped inside. The 12 defenders in the tower became the subject of much adulation and legends exalting their heroic last stand soon surrounded the event. I'm not sure that was much comfort to the 12 men themselves though, because they were all killed by the attacking Vikings as they were desperately holding on to their indefensible position. Even though they finally managed to remove one bridge, the Vikings were growing tired of the siege. They didn't like the drawn-out operations that demanded patience under the best of conditions, and here they were, in the middle of winter, in the rain and the cold, trying to force their way into Paris. Many of them lost interest and left the siege to pick lower-hanging fruit further upriver. The Parisian defenders also managed to slip some men through the Scandinavian lines, and they managed to reach King Charles and asked him to hurry to the city's defence. The king sent a relief force that wasn't able to defeat the Vikings, but at least the besieged Parisians managed to break out of the city to gather supplies during the attack. Even though the relief effort was only partially successful from a military perspective, it seems to have broken the already weakened morale of the Vikings. They gave the Parisians a re rebate on the Danegeld, and when they received 60 pounds of silver, a large part of the Scandinavian force, including its leadership, decided to up and leave in April. But not everybody thought that a measly 60 pounds of silver was enough, considering the wealth of Paris and all the hard work they had invested in the attack. A group of Vikings decided to stay put and try to squeeze more loot out of the rich city they'd spent more than four months trying to capture. The leader of these tenacious Vikings was a guy history knows as Rollo, but to his friends he was known as Rolf. In the summer of 886, Rollo and the remaining Vikings made a last attempt to take Paris, but they failed. When Charles the Fat himself showed up together with his army, the Vikings had to give up. Luckily enough for Rollo, King Charles chose not to attack the retreating Vikings and they could sail away. And not down the Seine and back to Scandinavia, but up the river, onward to Burgundy, where they robbed, ravished and raped with all the pinned-up aggression of someone who hasn't been able to pillage properly for months. Needless to say, this didn't make Charles the Fat popular in Burgundy, but at the time the region was in revolt anyway, so letting the Vikings loose there was a way for the king to both divert them from Paris and to punish his rebellious subjects in Burgundy. A win-win as far as the king was concerned. When the Vikings under Rollo finally left Francia in the spring of 887, King Charles even handed them a Danegeld of approximately 250 kilos of silver. Interestingly enough, the Parisians refused to grant Rollo's ships safe passage past their city on the way downstream, so the Vikings had to drag their longships and all that loot over land in order to circumvent the city and get out of the country. In 911, Rollo was back and he had a group of Vikings under his command besieged Paris and Charter. At the time, the Franks had a new king. This one was also called Charles, but to distinguish him from Charles the Bold and Charles the Fat, his nickname was Charles the Simple. If their naming habits is anything to go by, you gotta hand it to the medieval Franks. 
Whatever flaws they might have had, excessive reverence for their monarchs was not one of them. Back in 858, the Vikings had raided and burned Charter, but since then, the Franks had rebuilt the city and strengthened its defenses. Thanks to all these efforts, and, according to the legend, also thanks to the fact that the local bishop waved the Virgin Mary's tunic at the attacking Vikings, Rollo and his men didn't succeed in taking the city, and Charter was spared a second sacking in 50 years. Eventually, the Vikings retreated, but the Frankish cavalry, led by King Charles the Simple himself, was in hot pursuit. Rollo soon realized that his men wouldn't have the time to board their ships and get away before the Frankish forces would reach them. The situation looked grim, and the Vikings were facing being massacred on the banks of the river. But then Rollo had a brilliant idea. He ordered all of the livestock that his forces had brought with them to be brought forth and be slaughtered in a defensive line between the ships and the approaching Frankish cavalry. And it worked. The sight and smell of massive piles of animal corpses stopped the advancing horses in their tracks. When Charles uh, the Simple realized how Rollo had managed to avoid certain death for himself and his men, he was mightily impressed. So impressed, in fact, that he decided to try and strike a deal with the Viking leader. I hope I don't need to tell you that the story about the defensive wall of meat needs to be taken with a grain of salt. But after a victory against the Viking invaders near Chartier in the summer of 911, Charles was indeed satisfied that by signing a deal with Rollo, he'd killed two birds with one stone. He'd received a useful ally in the seemingly never-ending Frankish civil war, and the coastline of his kingdom would be safe from any further Viking attacks. So the king of West Francia and the Scandinavian warlord sat down to negotiate a deal, eventually reaching the Treaty of saint clair sur Epte. In return for the Vikings' loyalty and defense of Francia from further Viking attacks, Rollo was granted a fancy Frankish noble title, as well as all the land between the river Epte and the sea, land that had been hit repeatedly by Viking attacks since the 840s. Charles also gave Rollo the Duchy of Brittany, which at the time was a de facto independent territory which Charles unsuccessfully had tried to conquer. Kind of cheeky to give away something that doesn't really belong to you. Also, the land along the lower course of the River Seine was anyway depopulated due to fighting and constant Viking raids. So maybe Charles wasn't so simple after all. The king did have one condition though. Rollo had to become a Christian and undergo baptism. Otherwise, there would be no deal, no lands, and no noble title. Having a pagan vassal wouldn't fly, no matter how well he could protect the Channel coast. Rollo agreed, and at his baptism, he took the new Christian name Robert. The sources relating intermezzo at the official ceremony where Rollo was supposed to swear fealty to King Charles. The story is apocryphal at best, and probably not true, but nonetheless, it's too good to keep from you. So here it goes. According to the order of the ceremony, the newly minted nobleman was to kiss the foot of his lord and king, but Rollo refused. He ordered one of his officers in his retinue to do it for him. The soldier didn't have much of a choice and did it, but instead of kneeling down to kiss the foot, he lifted it up to his mouth. The result was that the no doubt surprised King Charles fell off his throne. The Vikings thought this was hilarious. The king was no doubt less amused, but nonetheless smart enough not to let the incident ruin the deal. The Norman court historian, Dudo of St. Quentin, claims that the cherry on top was that Charles married off his daughter Gisela to Rollo. 
There has been some speculation that Gisela wasn't one of Charles's legitimate children, but Dudo insists that she was. Considering that Charles married in 907, that means that Gisela couldn't have been more than five years old at the time that her father married her off to the Scandinavian warlord. But a diplomatic child betrothal doesn't have to be as creepy as it sounds. The consummation of the marriage probably didn't take place until years later. And even if it is creepy, it wasn't the first or the last time a young girl would be pawned off to seal a political deal. What is kind of creepy though, is that she died very young. According to the sources, she died from fright when Rollo beheaded two servants that her father, the king, had sent to her with a message of some kind. Rollo thought they were spies. As is the case with so many of the other Viking sea kings, we don't really know for sure where in Scandinavia Rollo came from. I'm not entirely sure that it really matters, but over the centuries, both Norwegians and Danes have claimed the dubious honor of having this brute as one of their own. There are two rivaling schools of thought with regards to Rollo's background, one claiming that he was Danish and a rival school insisting that he was of Norwegian stock. The first proponent of the Danish origin story is none other than Dudo of St. Quentin. He was born in 965 and ended up in Norman service writing a history of the Normans at the request of Rollo's grandson, Richard. The book, written in awkward Latin, was published about a century after Rollo struck his deal with King Charles the Simple. According to Dudo's version of events, Rollo was born and raised in Denmark, but when he ended up angering an unnamed king of Denmark, he had to leave his home and ended up in Francia. Apparently, Dudo didn't use any written sources for his research, and instead, most of the book is based on stories told to him by the Duke's half-brother, Raoul. All of this, both the time gap and the lack of written sources, has been used to undermine Dudo's credibility. And it would be difficult to make the argument that Dudo's history of the Normans is a solid piece of scholarship. But the thing is, that those who claim that Rollo was Norwegian don't really have terribly reliable sources to base their argument on either. William of Malmesbury, who lived a hundred years after Dudo, claimed that Rollo was of noble Norwegian birth. William of Malmesbury is backed up by the Icelandic politician and author Snorri Sturluson, who also claimed that Rollo was the son of a Norwegian Jarl. But Snorri lived about a generation later than William. Nonetheless, in Scandinavia, Snorri Sturluson's version of Rollo's biography was the one that was most widely accepted for a long time. Snorri claimed that Rollo was identical to Gongerolf, or Walking Rolf, the Viking hero who was so large and heavy that no horse could carry him. As a consequence, he had to walk everywhere. Some people have gone as far as to claim that Rollo was related to his contemporary Ketil Flatnose. If the name sounds familiar, it might be because we mentioned him in a previous episode when we talked about Scandinavian settlement of the islands off the Scottish mainland. This theory is based on common names running in both families, and a tradition that would have Kettle Flatnose being born in Møre, the region of Norway where the Icelandic sources claim that Rollo was from too. Not the most solid of cases, that's for sure. But whether Rollo was from Denmark or Norway, it's definitely true that he established the Duchy of Normandy, right? Well, not exactly. Even though it is true that Rollo was granted land along the Channel coast, he wasn't granted the title of Duke. In fact, the title Duke of Normandy 
didn't come into use until the 11th century, and the first official duke was Rollo's great-grandson, Richard II. It's true that Dudo of St. Quentin used the Latin word dux to describe Richard's father, the Richard who tasked Dudo with writing the history of the Normans. But that could just as well has been Dudo's trying to say military leader in his awkward Latin, because we have no external recognition of Richard I as Duke of Normandy. But what's in a title? What really matters is that Rollo was granted this land between the river Ept and Riesel, and that he then divided up this land between uh, those who had fought with him. His closest men received large estates, which made them rich landowners. Others received more modest allotments. Even though in some limited areas, the Scandinavians became the dominant population, on the whole, the men who arrived with Rollo would not have been enough to make any long-lasting demographic change in the region. But thanks to continued Scandinavian immigration from the Danelaw and renewed waves of raiders and settlers from Scandinavia itself, the new inhabitants avoided complete absorption into the local Frankish population for some time. We see this in several place names in the area that still are distinctly Scandinavian, such as Delbec, Borgebu, and several places called Lalonde, the latter being a corruption of the Scandinavian word for grove, possibly in reference to sacred groves where sacrifices to the gods were performed. The most obvious place name with Scandinavian roots has to be Normandy itself, the land of the Normans, and Normans being North men, men from the north. But with time, the Scandinavian settlers were assimilated into the local Frankish society. Considering that most of the newcomers were men and therefore had to marry local women, this development isn't exactly shocking. Within a few generations, the Vikings went totally native. They adopted Frankish habits and they discarded their old gods in favor for, favor for the Christian religion. They also switched to speaking French, even though Dudo of St. Quentin mentions that Richard, Rollo's grandson, was taught to speak Danish. Well, actually, Dudo claims that Richard was taught Dacian, but I chalk that up to his awkward Latin as well, since it's unlikely, to say the least, that the leader of the Normans would have been taught to speak an extinct ancient language from Eastern Europe. Anyway, all of this French culture, language and religion didn't slake the Norman appetite for battle though. The Vikings turned into knights. Rollo's son and heir was called William Longsword, and William's son was known as Richard the Fearless. These Norman leaders expanded the borders of Normandy and turned it into one of the strongest political units in the kingdom. Nominally, the king was still superior to the Dukes of Normandy, and they were meticulous about paying homage and pledge their loyalty to the king. But for all intents and purposes, Normandy was more or less independent, or at least autonomous. The dukes minted their own coins, collected taxes, appointed priests and bishops, and ran their own justice system. They even had the right to raise an army of their own. And soon enough, they would put that army to good use. But, paradoxically, the most famous of all Norman military conquests actually started with a peace initiative. When King Charles the Simple married off his daughter to Rollo, that wasn't the first or the last time a marriage was used to consolidate a political alliance. The Normans would continue this time-honored tradition, and in the year 1002, 
Rollo's great-grandson, Richard, married off his sister Emma to the King of England, Ethelred II, also known as Ethelred the Unready. They had several children, including a boy named Edward. When Ethelred died in 1016, his kingdom was in the middle of a serious crisis. During his reign, he had stirred up trouble by trying to limit Scandinavian power and influence in England by killing as many of his Scandinavian subjects as he possibly could. This plan backfired spectacularly and led to an invasion from an enormous Viking fleet. By the time of his death, almost his entire kingdom was under the control of a Danish Viking called Knut. The English defence collapsed completely when the king died, and Knut was proclaimed King of England a few months later, in November 1016. The following summer, in July 1017, Knut even married his predecessor's widow, Emma of Normandy. Emma's son with King Ethelred, Edward, was tactfully kept out of sight, probably with his mother's family in Normandy. Also, Emma's second marriage resulted in children, most notably a son named Hardeknut. Her new husband, Knut, also had a son from a previous marriage called Harold Herfoot. This complicated family is a veritable who's who of prominent people in the late Viking Age, but more importantly, this marriage was supposed to bring peace and good relations across the English Channel, but instead it paved the way for invasion and war. Knut died rather unexpectedly in 1035, and his death triggered a succession crisis slash civil war in England between his sons, the half-brothers Hardeknut and Harald Herfoot. I'm not getting into the details here, because we'll have reason to revisit this story in future episodes. What's important right now is that Hardeknut, Emma's son with Knut, ultimately ended up on the English throne after Harald Herfoot's death. Hardeknut then invited his half-brother Edward to return from his exile in Normandy in 1041. Already uh, the following year, Hardeknut died and Edward became king of England. During his reign, Edward the Confessor, as he became known, relied heavily on Norman support at court, in the church and in the army. All of this meant that many notable and powerful Norman families gained influence in England during his reign. And when Edward died childless in 1066, his first cousin once removed, William II, Duke of Normandy, made a claim for the English crown. William crossed the English Channel and met Harold Godwinson, who just weeks earlier had defeated a Viking invasion force at Stamford Bridge at Hastings on October 14, 1066. The Normans crushed the English defenders and King Harold was killed, according to tradition, by getting shot in the eye. The Normans then proceeded to conquer all of England, granting William the nickname The Conqueror, no doubt an upgrade from his previous nickname, The Bastard. Anyway, on Christmas Day, that same eventful year, he was also upgraded from Duke of Normandy to King of England. I haven't done the math myself, but those who have claim that this makes the fat Viking warlord Rollo the 32nd great-grandfather of Queen Elizabeth, the current English monarch. In Britain, and in most of the Anglophone world for that matter, the year 1066 is seen as the end of the Viking Age. But that's not the case in Scandinavia. The fact that one Viking invasion of England was defeated and another invasion of descendants of Vikings was successful has never been seen by Scandinavians as a convincing reason to put an end to the Viking Age. 
even though England was an important playground for the Vikings, it was far from the only one. Next time, we'll turn our attention northward to another part of the world that the Vikings conquered and settled. And unlike England and Normandy, they never lost control. Instead, this part of our planet was permanently incorporated into the Scandinavian cultural and demographical sphere. I refer, of course, to Iceland. And next time, we start a series of episodes that will deal with the discovery and colonization of that island of ice, fire and inclement weather. But before I sign off today, I'd like to take the opportunity to plug the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page. That way, you'll never miss an episode of the podcast and you'll be exposed to some extra material. Some random, but at least some of it is connected to the current episodes. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. I'm looking forward to hearing from you.